Happy New Year's, everyone. It's me, D.B. Spitzer. Just wanted to say Happy New Year from everyone here at Radio Free Oleander, from KZOM 1130 AM, Oleander, Oregon, the book club, the farm report, everyone over at Oblivion's. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. Let's make it a good year, everyone. And uh, to kick the year off right, we're going with some hard-boiled detective stories. Bringing the straight dick to you, you know. So, uh, I'm not that great with uh, the old-timey phrases. And a lot of them, I don't know, I think can probably be abandoned. Uh, <laughs> some of them aren't that great anymore. But hey, you know, this. Uh, these stories are uh, hotter than uh, penny whistles. Twice as deadly. I don't know. Uh, you're going to hear this a whole bunch all month long. All right. Here's some detective stories. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, thank you for listening to Radio Free Oleander Book Club. Recording by Dan Grzynski. Hooded Detective. Six Pulp Detective Stories. Story number one. Candidate for a Coffin. By T.W. Ford. Death stood on the Times Square subway platform uptown side, waiting for a subject. Death looked at himself in the gum machine mirror, then down at his watch. It was exactly 4.12 p.m., Wednesday, December 10th. When the second hand hit the 30 mark, he would turn around, and the person nearest would be it. Death wore a blue pinstriped suit, well-fitting, but slightly unpressed. Death's name was Wilson Lamb. The second hand, wiped over the twenty of the smaller dial, jittered on toward the half-minute spot, inexorable and meaningless, just as what Wilson Lamb planned. He said, Now, with a little sucking in of breath, and a thin, anticipant smile and a spun on his heel, he was a slim, saturnine-faced man, with cigarette ash stain on a coat lapel, undistinguished from any typical strap-hanger, except, perhaps, by the light-hued eyes. His shoes needed a shine. He lifted the pale eyes from them and looked for the corpse to be. To the left, to the right. Then he came as near recoiling from the thing as he ever would. It looked as if it might be a woman. Somehow he had always thought of killing a man, something that could strike back. Not that he would get the chance, it was just the idea of the thing. But she, the woman, was descending the stairs that led up to the shuttle, bearing down toward him less than twenty feet away, big and billowy and red-faced, waddling along like a sow, to face a jury, charged with doing away with a hunk of human beef like that, and... He flashed a glance to the left again, Nobody near. It was a fluke of circumstance. A score of people weren't buzzing all about him. He whipped his eyes back toward the woman as a local thundered in. And luck took a hand. A stocky man dodged around from behind the woman and came rapidly down the platform. Neat, crisp, briefcase under his arm. Wilson Lamb's pale eyes flickered with amusement. He said softly, "'Tag, you're it, John W. Goon.' This was his corpse to be. Mr. Death had made his pickup. Excuse me, an express rolled in, and cutting over for it, the stocky man brushed Lamb. His voice was mild, 
colorless. He wore a gray snap-brim hat. It was set squarely on his head, precisely level. Lamb had seen hats worn like that by show-window clothing dummies. The man entered the third car, middle door. Wilson Lamb boarded it on his heels. His victim almost got a seat. A pimply-faced office boy elbowed him out of it, and the man turned away meekly. He hooked himself onto a strap, hitched the briefcase up under his free arm, and concentrated on a segment of his folded-open newspaper. It was one of the conservative sheets, comicless, reactionary Republican to the core. Wilson eased down the aisle, casually pushing a woman out of his way, and glanced over his victim's shoulder. The goon was studying an advertisement for a nine-piece living room suite, overstuffed at special reduction this week only. It was at one of the better department stores. Amusement flickered in Wilson Lamb's pale eyes. He got the picture. A typical George Babbitt in the flesh, to the core. At 72nd Street, the stocky man got a seat. When he faced the light, Lamb saw he was turning slightly gray over the ears. He had a roundish face, a little fleshy under the chin, a soft-lipped mouth that from habit he held slightly pursed, muddy eyes. He was inclined to plumpness. Somebody had scuffed his right shoe in getting out, and now he pulled up the pant leg of his dark gray suit to study it ruefully. Typical taxpayer, Lamb said to himself, savoring it. Always makes his insurance payments on time. Probably has weak arches. Is going to buy the five-foot bookshelf, always next week, and read it. Would like to get up the nerve enough to take that blonde steno at the office out to luncheon. Wilson Lamb wanted to laugh out loud. It was as good as having a duck flutter down smack in front of your blind. Past 86th, the express roared. Lamb's victim had turned his paper, halved back the last page. Automatic pencil poised, he was scanning the crossword puzzle intently. As they lolled through 91st, he bared his teeth in a satisfied smile and rapidly filled in four vertical blanks, then filled out the lower right-hand corner. Lamb saw that his four upper-front teeth were a neatly fitted denture. He wondered how they'd look after a bullet had gone through them. The victim got off at 96th, carefully straightening his muffler inside his black overcoat. He went downstairs, crossed beneath the local platform to the west side, mounted to street level. He had a cigarette in his mouth, but waited until he was outside the subway entrance before he put a match to it. Lamb lit one, too. He picked up an evening paper from the newsstand. It might come in handy if he got to close quarters with the dope and wanted to mask his face. The news dealer was looking the other way as he made change, so Lamb plucked back his nickel. The victim started to cross 96th Street, heading north. A traffic officer's whistle shrilled. Broadway was spattered with the ruby red of traffic lights. Vehicles moved cross town. Dutifully, Lamb's goon turned and retraced his steps to the curb, holding his four-square hat carefully. A little trick with skimpy skirts whipped about plump calves crossed on over. Watching her, Lamb's victim shook his head. Lamb could hear him saying, Tisk, tisk. Foolish to take chances like that. Imagine him saying it anyway. Lamb kept at a cautious distance as they moved several blocks up Broadway. Walking briskly, 
The victim turned onto a side street. There was something smug about the way he picked up his heels, swung his briefcase. Little man who has had a busy day with a job well done, Lamb paraphrased it sarcastically. He pushed his battered felt hat further back on his head in a gesture of disgust. His cheap, unbuttoned, raglan-style coat fluttered in the wind off the Hudson. Abruptly, the man had halted, wheeled. Lamb calmly turned and opened the rear door of a parked sedan, whose driver was at the wheel, put a foot in. Down the block, his victim headed into a distinctly second-rate apartment hotel. Lamb said to the sedan driver, I thought this was a hearse, and went down the block. His victim was getting his mail at the desk when Lamb entered the shabby lobby. Lamb got on the elevator after him. The victim said, Nine. Immersed in his paper again, studying that living room suite. He had his key ready in his hand. Terracotta-hued tab swinging loose. Nine one four was lettered on it in black. Ten, bud, Lamb told the operator. On the tenth floor, he moved quickly down the frayed carpet of a corridor and found the service stairs. Back on the ninth, even when he was yards from the door of 914, he caught the odor of cooking. Rich and greasy, he got his ear against the door. Spare ribs and sauerkraut, hi, Edie, the victim was calling out inside. Lamb could visualize him putting his coat on a hanger, carefully folding a scarf over it. From the rear of the apartment came Edie's voice reedy with a bit of a whine. Lamb could visualize her, too, a dyed blonde who devoured film fan magazines and thought the girdle was the world's greatest invention. Uh-huh. How'd things go downtown today, Lou? Through the thin door, Lamb heard him clear his throat and mutter, Oh, so-so. But Edie wasn't to be put off. Lou, did you tell the boss you had to have a raise, that the job is worth more? Lou started to mumble something. Edie's voice, penetrating the door easily, rose to a querulous pitch. Lou, you're too easygoing. You ain't got the sense to stand up for your rights. You're an expert in your line, and you know it. There's never any kickback or complaint on a job you do. I know. I know, Edie, but Wilson Lamb's victim got in. You're entitled to more money, Lou. You've never bungled a job yet. I need a new coat, and you said you wanted to put the kid in a private school after the first of the year. How are we going to do it if you don't? Lou said, Look, Edie, something came up today, and the boss had to leave in a hurry, right in the middle of a conference. I just had time to grab my briefcase myself. Let's get to work on those spare ribs. They moved toward the rear of the apartment, and Lamb out in the hall could hear no more. He was chuckling as he walked away. Loose mouth curled in a sneer. Back on the tenth floor, he boarded the elevator again. Again, it was empty except for the operator, a tow-headed kid with a racing form tucked in a side pocket. Funny thing, Lamb mentioned casually. I could have sworn I knew the man who rode up with me. Stocky chap, got off at the ninth, but I can't seem to recall his name. Mr. Engel, you mean? Angle, Angle. Lou Angle? Is he an accountant? Yeah, Louis Angle's the name, but he ain't no accountant. Comes from Chicago. I heard him tell the manager he was an efficiency expert. 
Lamb stopped rattling the coins in his pocket suggestively, kept them there, and strolled toward the main entrance. Behind him, a lobby lounger moved over to the elevator boy, jerking his chin in Wilson Lamb's direction as he asked a question. At the corner, Lamb stopped in and bought a drink. Thin face creased in a smile of self-satisfaction, he glanced at the paper he had bought. Below the latest war communiques was a small column head about a threatened gang war in the numbers racket. Police, raid, Joe, the flasher Abadiro's headquarters, it said. Lamb's eyes picked up flashes of it when plainclothes squad walked into luxurious apartment, Midtown Westside Hotel, several henchmen taken into custody on technical charges. Abadiro reported out of town. Police acting on tip killers imported from Chicago. Showdown anticipated on who will boss numbers racket in metropolitan area. Lamb turned the paper over and winked at himself in the concave mirror of the semicircle of bar. That was an important claptrap to somebody like him. That kind of tripe was for the little Joe dopes who got their thrills vicariously. There was going to be nothing vicarious about what he was going to do. He was going to rub out Louis Engel. Blast him. Louis the goon, as he had already christened him in his mind. He had put the finger on him. Louis the goon is going to die, Wilson Lamb said softly. He liked the sound of it. He wasn't crazy. Long ago he had assured himself of that. It was just that his mind operated in a different, a higher plane than the norm. He was not one of the little pieces of protoplasm running along with the herd. He was above them, looking down on them, studying them. His perspective ranged somewhat further than the end of his nose. The latest double feature at the neighborhood movie house and spare ribs. That last made him laugh out loud. He picked up his change and headed back for the subway and his two-room apartment in the village. His gun, a forty-five automatic, was there. He would be needing it soon, Louis the Goon practically demanded, invited the use of a forty-five automatic on him. Efficiency engineer, Lamb said to himself once. The guy was the perfect subject, ripe for murder. The more Lamb thought of it, the more he was convinced he couldn't have dreamt up a better stooge. Engel was a model for homicide. He himself might die for it, but that was unimportant. The killing of Louis the Goon was the only thing that counted. The results, materially speaking, meant nothing. This slaying was to be an exposition of the ego. Without other cause, emotionless, with no hope of gain, financial or otherwise. No female involved, nothing. Just a killing, a plain open-and-shut case of homicide for no earthly reason imaginable to the police. It would be amusing to watch those flatfoots sitting around trying to sift a motive out of the thing. Baby, they'd sweat their so-and-sos off trying to cook up a reason for this one. It was so simple to Lamb himself, inevitable, a logical step in a sequence, the final step perhaps. Louis the Goon Angle was a mere walk-on in the piece, a spear carrier doomed to death, little better than a papier-mâché dummy set up to be the target for the custard pie, only in this case, the custard pie was to be a cupro steel-nosed bullet. To Lamb it boiled down to an ultimate expression of the psyche. 
the final test of one's ability to project the personal ego over all else in the material world. Because the ego was the alpha and omega of all living the moment one got above the level of animal existence. The mere feeding of the face and satisfaction of the other instinctive physical hungers. As Braunich had put it so succinctly, even the lowest worm can procreate itself, unfortunately. Then, of course, there was Nietzsche and his Superman, and some of Freud in that treatise of van der Water, the Belgian, on the sublimation of the subconscious by the negation of the self-censor, and the papers of Bralinsky of the old University of Warsaw on the fear of trauma, which he termed birthmark of civilization. Lamb had gone into them all deeply, all of them dealing with the ego, the ego and its development and complete consummation. And the killing of Louis the Goon Angle was going to be the consummation of Wilson Lamb's experiments in the total exemplification of that ego. It was no brash idea, no harebrained impulse concocted in one's cups, perhaps. Analytically, objectively, he had thought out the whole thing. The axis of life was the psyche. Its two poles were birth and death. And as Braunich had stated, the former was a function, often accidental, of which the lowest animal order was capable. A monocell, the amoeba, was able to reproduce itself by the simple stratagem of subdivision. But death, when it became a deliberate action, administered without emotion or hope of material gain, was one step removed from the godhead, perhaps less than one step but the step that would raise one above all the little fumbling, blind-spawning, life-hugging bipeds who infested the scene. In short, birth was fortuitous, a product of circumstance plus proximity. It's get a biological accident, but death, the taking of life, was a selective process, intentionally executed, the result of foreseen conclusion. In so doing, the taking of life, you broke the greatest law of humanity and so became above it. You unfettered the ego with a single ineradicable stroke. In taking a life, one tasted the essence of living. He tried to remember who had said that. De Maupassant had put it better, but Lamb could not quite recall the quotation. He was still trying to remember it as he lounged down the block from Engel's apartment hotel at 8.10 in the next morning. There was a bone-chilling breeze off the drive that made Lamb belt his coat tighter about him. When at 9.35 Louis the goon Engel had not made an appearance, Lamb went down to the corner drugstore and had a cup of coffee. He could not see the entrance of the hotel through the window, but he commanded a clear view of the street and anybody coming up it toward the subway. And if he ever saw one, his corpse-to-be was a methodical little piece of humanity. He would come and go to the subway by the same route. Wilson Lamb was correct, as he had never doubted. But it was 11.07 by his wristwatch before Angle emerged, the gray hat just as squarely set on his head as before. Without a glance around, Angle came out of the hotel and turned his steps dutifully in the direction of the subway. Lamb was strolling on the other side of the street at the moment. 
On sight of him, he turned up the front stairs of a brownstone. But a few seconds later, his long legs were carrying him rapidly toward Broadway. By hustling, he got to the other side of it, entered the subway on the uptown side, crossed underneath, and was waiting in the bypass when Engel came along. Engel trotted up to the downtown express platform. When the next train pulled out, Lamb was in the vestibule half a car length away from him. Taking the trouble to keep at a distance to make himself inconspicuous seemed almost wasted effort. Louis the goon went along, looking neither to the right nor left, docilely intent on minding his own business. Efficiency expert, Lamb said to himself, that he's a crackerjack at cutting down on the overhead. It was like playing a game of cat and mouse with him. Wilson Lamb the cat. Only in this instance, the mouse seemed as good as blind. Lamb could have given it to him any time. A slug in the back that would terminate his little life the way you would step on a cockroach. On second thought, he would not give it to him in the back. It would be the front so he could see the stricken, stupid look of surprise. He'd probably try to get his foolish little briefcase in front of him like a shield. Lamb could just see it. Here is squeal of futile protest, too. Yes, he could give it to him whenever he chose. Just walk up to him and squeeze the trigger and savor omnipotence for a moment. Very simple. At his leisure. But Wilson Lamb wasn't going to do it that way. That would have been like a blind stab in the dark. Meaningless, impersonal. Like taking a hack at a piece of meat or tossing a bomb into a crowd. Instead, he wanted to know something about his specimen before he exterminated him. Understand his background. Get a fair picture of the little sphere of the life from which he was all unknowingly about to depart. Lamb didn't figure it to take long in the case of Louis the Goon. What Engel was, was pretty patent. A typical little taxpayer careful to keep his nose clean, asking only to be permitted to tread his narrow path unmolested. Undoubtedly the type who got sick to his stomach at the sight of blood, even though it might be no more than a nosebleed. At 42nd Street, Louis the Goon got off and trundled over to the shuttle. He passed through the Grand Central Station, stopping off to buy a package of camels en route. The cigar store had a counter display of a bargain buy of razor blades, combined with some unknown brand of shaving cream. Engel hovered over it like a bargain-hunting housewife. The clerk put on his spiel. Engel bought, got stuck for a bottle of aftershave lotion, too. Lamb saw it all from over by the counter of the baggage checking room. A penny saved is a penny earned, he paraphrased for him. They cut through the gray bar building to come out on Lexington. Engel proceeded north a few blocks, turned onto one of the commercial hotels noted for its name brand. Halfway across the lobby, a tall, swarthy man with one of those deadpan faces rose to greet him. They shook hands. You're right on the dot, the tall man said. Engel's pursed mouth lengthened in a flattered smile. I always make it a point to be punctual. Lamb, dawdling in the background, overheard him say. Then they headed for the elevator bank. The tall one shot two glances backward as they did so. Lamb couldn't make it too obvious. 
When he rounded the corner of the L, where the elevators were, they were gone. Lamb went back into the main lobby and ensconced himself behind a morning paper. Midway down the page was more about the threatened strife in the numbers racket. It didn't interest Lamb in the slightest. Engel probably had gone upstairs to try and peddle one of his efficiency schemes to some big shot. The guy he'd met in the lobby was a go-between, doubtlessly. Lamb wondered whether Louis the Goon would get up the nerve to hit his boss for that raise today, as Edie had demanded. Lamb almost lost him. Half an hour later, Louis the Goon came down and scooted out the side entrance in a hurry. When Lamb got out there, his man was already in a cab shooting away. There was something wrong about the conservative, penny-saving angle taking a taxi. Wilson Lamb did not realize it at the time. They went westward across town. Over near 6th, Lamb's driver lost the other cab. Lamb was cursing when he spotted Engel on the sidewalk, coming back across town. That was strange, because he could have sworn Engel's cab had not stopped. Must have gotten it mixed up with another. Out, he threaded his way recklessly through a welter of vehicles and picked up the tail as his man entered an office building. It was fairly crowded in that foyer, and it was simple to step into the elevator right at Louis the Goon Engel's back. Then wheel behind him, out of sight as he turned. Engel called, 14, and got out there. Briefcase tightly clutched up under his arm, its flap unbuckled. Going in to high-pressure somebody on a sail, Lamb figured. Another passenger had called 15th, the next floor. Lamb got out there, found the built-in fire escape, and got down to 14. This was a little foolish, he realized. There was no way of finding what office Louis the Goon had visited. Still, he might see him when he came out. Maybe he had gone to see the boss about that raise he was demanding. Maybe he'd come out bouncing on his tail feathers. It was fun following and watching Louis the Goon. Like watching an ant on a sidewalk flagstone puttering about its puny business, knowing you were going to stamp out its life when it so pleased you. Lamb was just lighting a cigarette, gazing down the hallway of the 14th floor, when the muffled report came up the staircase. It didn't seem possible. A gun seemed so out of place in such surroundings. Then there were two more shots, a scream intermixed, the shattering of plate glass. Lamb was down the stairs and pulling open the fire door onto the floor below. Immediately, he sniffed the acrid fumes of gunpowder. He was looking onto an L of that floor, onto a tableau of violence. There was just a single office suite on that L, directly opposite him. On one of its double doors was lettered Continental Exhibition Corp. The frosted glass of the other door was almost completely broken out, leaving a jagged fringed aperture through which to view the scene within. Wilson Lamb flattered himself on being pretty cool-headed under all circumstances, but he blinked three times rapidly now. Inside the Continental Exhibition Corporation, one man was slumped over a desk, an automatic half-gripped in his inert hand. He was very dead. Half his head was shot off. Another man was sprawled on the gray broadloom of the reception room, a brownish puddle beneath his side. 
He wasn't going to be going any place in a hurry either. Even as Lamb stared at the carnage, a third figure appeared, wobbling drunkenly from an inner office. He came stooped over, holding his side, crimson speckled froth at his lips. He got to the shattered glass panel and moved the lips at Wilson Lamb. Tell him, the police, it was Whisper Russ from the sh... He coughed twice on the Chicago, then caved in on himself and went flat in the hallway. Lamb saw an ashen-faced, bespectacled man peering around the corner of an L. From further back, through an open doorway, a girl's voice was shrieking for the police over the phone. Lamb remembered the fact that he had a gun on his person. It might be extremely embarrassing if the police picked him up for questioning. Ducking back through the fire door, he ran quickly up to the 16th floor, up past the 15th. Nothing had been heard up there yet. He caught a down car and got out just as the first prowl car came sirening its way into the side street curb. Afterward, outside the police cordon thrown around the building, somebody jostled against him, peered under his hat brim. Later, Lammer called the bluish scar crescent on his left cheek. Hey, aren't you Reynolds of the Dispatch, pal? Nope, Lamb said. You're a reporter with one of the local sheets, aren't you? The other persisted. I know I've seen you around before. You must have been wearing your other glasses, bud, Lamb said and turned away. Maybe it was the effect of seeing the handiwork of that other unknown killer, for the police had nabbed nobody yet in that midtown midday shooting. Anyway, Lamb had the itch to strike. It was like a thirst building in a guy. You've seen somebody else dip into a tall, cool one, and after a while you feel like you've got to have one yourself. Those three dead men on the 13th floor of that office building had acted like an aphrodisiac on Wilson Lamb. He wanted to get him his corpse, but soon. He knew it when he picked up his victim again. It was almost 4 p.m., shreds of snow drifting down through New York's early darkness. He was hanging around by the cab stand above 96th on the west side of Broadway, waiting hopefully. He had got so that he felt a little lonely when he didn't have Louis the Goon right handy. He felt on familiar terms with the guy. Of course, Louis the Goon didn't know him. And when he introduced himself, Louis was going to get one hell of a big surprise. Like a kick in the teeth only a lot more permanent. One of the hackies turned up his radio. A news commentator was on. He came to the topic of the Midtown shooting. Three dead, gunned in the office of the Continental Exhibition Corporation. Lamb edged over nearer. The Continental outfit, the announcer said, was the business front for one of Big John Gira, well-known local racketeer. Gira was a powerful figure in the Metropolitan Pinball Game Syndicate and had a piece of the number policy racket, too. Police, promising an arrest within 24 hours, claimed the triple killing a step in the fight for control of the numbers game business in this city. They are still seeking the missing Joe the Flasher Abadiro, also reputed to have boasted he would take over the numbers game. Two of the slain men have been identified as close associates of Big John Gira. A building employee stated earlier today that Gira left the premises less than five minutes before the killing. 
a prominent police official who refused to be quoted, asserted the killer was a Chicago torpedo imported for the job. A killer who would not be recognized by members of the New York mobs. We are closing in on him at this very instant, the official concluded. The news broadcaster went on to another item of the day's reports. Lamb turned around, and there was Louis the Goon Engel, not four feet away, en route home from the subway. He had paused to listen to the report, too. He stood now with a calculating look, almost as if he were checking the verity of the report. Lamb wanted to laugh in his face. If you'd seen those three carcasses leaking blood all over the place, you'd probably have swooned in your britches, my little dope. Lamb addressed him mentally. And the funny part was, the little dope had been so close to it, just a floor away, in fact. As he followed him on uptown, down his side street, Lamb had a curious sense of elation. He was in on the ground floor of Death, Incorporated, even before voting at a stockholders' meeting himself, for he knew who had triggered those three today. Who the chai torpedo the cops wanted was. One Whisper Ross. Of course, he might have tipped off the police, say, by a phone call. But he wasn't going to. We killers must stick together. The thought tickled his sense of humor. They were almost at Louis the Goon's roost when Lamb saw how he was going to do it. A boy with a carton of groceries almost ran down Louis, then ducked down into the delivery entrance of the apartment hotel, and Wilson Lamb had his cue. Some ten minutes later, after due investigation, he knew how he was going to put Louis the Goon on the spot, and how he was going to get away with it, get clear afterward. The taking of life was the important thing, the major premise. Whether he was caught or not had never seemed important before. But after reviewing the handiwork of Whisper Ross, who had ambled off, unimpeded, Lamb saw no reason why he should not do the same. It would be the nth degree in the epitomization of the ego to kill and get away with it. The building's delivery entrance was a perfect avenue of escape. Actually, it did not enter the hotel at first, down a few steps, and then it ran rearward, between the side of the building and the retaining wall next door, an open-topped alleyway. The delivery doorway was in the rear. A few feet further on was the backyard laid out in a garden with a waterless age-browned concrete fountain in the center. A low concrete wall separated it from the property that backed onto it, and there was the payoff ambling casually through in the darkness. Lamb had discovered that the property in the rear, facing on the next street downtown, was several feet lower. It would be simple to drop over the wall to its paved courtyard, and from that run a concrete passage beside the apartment house, out to the street one block below. Emerging on it, Lamb lit a cigarette and went back around the block to Engel's place. He appraised it like a surveyor. First off, it was one of those second-rate places that boasted no doorman. Across the street were those brownstones for a nice dim background. The nearest street lamp was down about ten feet from the entrance of Engel's place. Engel would come walking along primly, right into its light. A man crossing the street from the brownstones, a little behind Engel, calling out, Hey, Mr. Engel, and... It was a very nice setup. 
the property line of the building where Engel lived was set back several feet further than that of the old-fashioned private homes between it and Broadway. They would serve as a screen for his movements from one direction when he hit onto that delivery alleyway. After fixing Louis the Goon's wagon once and for all, Lamb realized it was almost ridiculously simple. Why, he could almost have chalked an X right there and then on the sidewalk where little Louis would lie down and forget it all. Wilson Lamb hummed as he headed up toward Broadway and decided to have dinner. He had a swell appetite. He was humming snatches from something. Minor key, descending scale. It went, come to papa, come to papa, come to papa. He didn't know whether it was from a song or a crap game. Anyway, the dice were sure loaded against a certain party he knew. Down the block, a taxi that had been parked with meter ticking across from Engel's apartment hotel drew away slowly. He went to the movies with Louis the Goon that evening. Louis didn't know anything about it, and Lamb bought his own ticket. That, too, had been extremely simple. After dinner, he had phoned Engel. When Louis himself answered, Lamb had asked for toots. Louis said they had no toots there, and Lamb said he was very sorry that he must have got the wrong number. And Lewis said that was all right, no harm done. And Lamb said he was sorry he had disturbed him. And Lewis said to think nothing of it, no trouble at all. And Lamb said a four-letter word after he had hung up and laughed out loud in the phone booth. Then he hung around and saw Lewis come out after dinner. Edie was with him this time. Edie was the type after which some department store advertising department diplomat had coined the term stylish stout. Edie toddled, and she was pretty hefty. If there was a family argument, Lamb would have laid two to one she would have come home in front by a TKO before the fifth round. They went into the movies on the northwest corner of 96th. The closest Lamb could get was some three rows back. He was disappointed, because he could not watch Engel's face. It was a double feature. Pompous Nights was one of those alleged South American musicals whipped up by a couple of sub-morons with the intent purpose of sabotaging the good neighbor policy. The other picture was some ghoulish thing about a mad surgeon described in the script as an egomaniac who had a pleasant pastime of revivifying electrocuted felons. That one gave Lamb a pain in the pants, too. He had really made a study of egomaniacs. He got out in the foyer right behind the angles. He heard Edie say she thought the one about that nutty dock was so thrilling. Louis the Goon did not agree. He liked those musicals. They take my mind off business, he said. Lamb left them and went in and had a drink. He had two drinks. Now that everything was settled, he felt no impatience. It was all lined up right down to the final curtain. Lewis's final curtain. Lamb had already decided he would give it to him as he came plodding his smug little way home some evening. Any evening. Maybe tomorrow evening. Now that the details were ironed out, it was fun to leave the closing date open. He could play the fly on the wall in Lewis the Goon's life as long as he wanted. And when he got bored with Lewis's act, bop! He would deliver his compact little package to Lewis. He started to get bored fast the next day. 
he rode downtown with Lewis, and they went over to that same East Side Hotel. And Lewis went upstairs. He was gone a long time. Lamb said to himself, That dope goes around in a rut, and I'll get in one, too, just following him, and then I will get sore. Eventually, Lewis the goon came back down into the lobby. The tall, swarthy man he had met there the day before was with him. Well, I guess there'll be nothing doing today, Lewis the goon said. Nope, nothing, the other said. They parted. Lewis went down to the telephones, used one after consulting a little black book. When he came out, he bought a white carnation for his buttonhole in the florist shop, then treated himself to three twenty-five center perfectos. Something builds, Lamb told himself. Outside, when Lewis the goon got a taxi, there was something positively cocky about him. Lamb was humming his come to Papa again as he took another and trailed him eastward this time. Lewis got out at a Third Avenue bar and grill and went in. Lamb gave him five minutes and straight in himself. There was no Lewis. Not at first, anyway. Lamb could feel his pulse beat faster. Then he spotted the dim back room with the booths, and he went through it to the men's room. And there was Lewis the goon, his little clay pigeon, in one of the booths with a doll. She was red-haired by courtesy of the local beauty parlor, cuddling up in a flashy little leopard fur number. She looked like a dance-hall hostess from one of the joints where everything goes so long as you keep time to the music. As Lamb passed, she was saying, Now, Daddy! That almost unbuttoned Lamb. Daddy! On his way back, he noticed there were two others in the back room couple of men gnawing on pretzels over beers. He stepped back into the bar just in time. Three men had entered. They headed straight for the rear. One of them shouldered Wilson Lamb from his path as if he did not see him. The second one pulled out a cannon and poked it at the bartender and told him to keep his britches on. Then the other two were in the rear and letting go with their cannon. Slammed over against the bar, Lamb had a split-second glimpse of it. For a moment... It almost seemed as if the damn fools were out after Angle. One shot smashed the table lamp in the booth where he sat. Then the two beer drinkers back in there were around and swapping it out with cannon of their own with the newcomers. Lamb got out of there fast. He got across the street. He saw two men dash out of a side entrance and into a dark sedan that roared away. He did not see Louis the Goon get out. Then the howling prowl cars converged on the scene, and there was an ambulance. It took one guy away. Another guy, it didn't. Lamb worked his way up into the throng and got a glimpse of the other guy, getting stiff on the backroom floor. Everybody else was lined up in the bar for questioning. Angle was not among them. So Lamb knew he must have gotten away all right. This is some more of that numbers racket war, a gray-haired sergeant said. And then Lamb began to taste something like panic, even as the first neon signs began to smear the wintry shadows. He got afraid he might lose his little clay pigeon. Louis the Goon seemed to have a blind genius for getting on the scene when some bloodletting was due. He felt a certain possessiveness towards Louis. Louis belonged to him. And he wasn't going to have him chopped down by any piece of stray lead. Lamb had a bullet ear marked for Lewis. He said, 
I've been wasting time. He got on the shuttle and over to the west side and up to 96th and across the street from where Lewis lived. Well, where Lewis used to live, anyway. He was there just 20 minutes. It was 4.43 by his wristwatch when Lewis the goon came down from the corner. Couldn't make out his face at first, but he knew him by that square-set hat. Lamb eased away from the stairs, the brownstone humming, Come to Papa, come to Papa, come to Papa. This was it. The ultimate in the demonstration of the ego. He told himself that as he moved over the scabrous snow of the street. The zenith in the projection of the psyche. Louis the goon had his briefcase clutched up under one arm instead of swinging. The final triumph over the fear trauma. Lewis was abreast of him, then passing by. Wilson Lamb brought the automatic out from under his coat. He called, Mr. Engel. And Louis the goon turned, and Lamb held it, wanting him to get a good look at the heater, wanting to get a good look at him as he saw it. Engel had the briefcase open, unbuckled. He was bringing something out of it, swiftly, jerkily. It was a heater, too. That wasn't in the script. Louis the goon was stepping out of roll, but Lamb knew he had him anyway, and started to squeeze. He would squeeze three times on that trigger, and somebody else squeezed first. It was the man running from that parked car down the street. Lamb got it in the side, and then a red-hot finger was probing down into his guts. A man stepped from the vestibule of one of those brownstones, and he squeezed, and Wilson Lamb couldn't feel the side of his head anymore. Knew he would never feel it again. He was down on one hand and one knee, and his gun was gone. Some place in the black haze seething around him. Like a hurt animal, half crawling, knowing only the base instinct of self-preservation, he tried for that delivery alleyway. Somebody else had figured that was a good spot, too. It was the man with the bluish cheek scar who had accosted him after the triple killing in that office building. He squeezed. And Lamb took that one square in the chest. In a vague way, as the sidewalk slid up at him, he was aware of that car backfiring away like hell. The man with the blue scar was standing over him, throwing words to Louis the goon in a quick, harsh whisper. This is the one, Whisper. He came in here with you Wednesday. He was on the spot when you gave it to them boys in Gira's office yesterday. Today, he was in that bar when they tried to get you. The flasher said to stick close to you and him. Gira's finger man, eh? Called back Engel softly. Yeah, Whisper. The blue-scarred man ran. In a moment, a car roared off down the block toward West End Avenue. Lying there on the sidewalk, blasted for keeps, his wagon fixed. Wilson Lamb tried to put it together. Things moved very slowly for him. Whisper. Whisper Ross. Chai Torpedo. Then he had it. Whisper Ross was Louis the Goon Angle. Hired killer of Joe the Flasher Abadero. The guy he, Wilson Lamb, had fingered for an exposition of his ego. Down the sidewalk, little Mr. Lewis Angle, alias Whisper Ross, stood looking at the body and going, tsk, tsk, through pursed lips. Wilson Lamb's ego died a horrible death 17 seconds before he did. End of Candidate for a Coffin <laughs>